because I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was I going to say? I don't know. That's obviously quite useful. What was I going to say? Fuck's sake! <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Co-Conspirators podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Callum. Hello there. And Luke. Guten Tag. <laughs> oh, very topical. Before we start, we'd like to say a huge thank you for helping us hit our first milestone of 50 subscribers. And hopefully it's the first milestone of many that we can reach. Over half of the people that watched our last video were not subscribed. Please do subscribe if you're listening on YouTube and you'll get weekly podcasts. This week's episode is all about World War II. So World War II is arguably the most famous conflict of all time, which is some achievement given that the sequels rarely live up to the hype of their predecessor. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's even up for argument, really. I think it's definitively the greatest war of all time yeah i agree australians would beg to differ given the great emu war (laughs) if anyone doesn't know about the australia emu war please please look at the oversimplified video it's it's absolutely hilarious (laughs) they lose yeah they did (laughs) to be fair the military tactics of the emus was second to none like (laughs) sorry world war ii lasted from the first of september 1939 till the 2nd of September 1945, and was the deadliest military conflict in history, with an estimated 85 million people losing their lives, or 3% of the world's population at the time. Jeez, that's actually crazy, 3%. I guess you've got to consider as well, so many countries weren't involved, so you could be talking like some countries... I think Poland lost 25% of its entire population. Yeah, that's crazy. The war featured arguably two of the most famous people to have ever lived, Adolf Hitler and Sir Winston Churchill, who led Germany and the UK respectively. And it began when Hitler's forces invaded Poland and it culminated with the last of the Axis forces surrendering, following the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. During this podcast, we're going to delve a bit deeper into some of the unknowns and some of the unlikely but compelling conspiracy theories surrounding the war. But don't worry, we won't be looking into Holocaust denial. So yeah, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Callum and he's going to give us our first theory. Right, thanks for that, John. My theory serves to tie two big conspiracies together regarding the involvement of the United States in World War II, which produced a conspiracy theory that echoes some of the stuff we talked about in the 9-11 podcast, specifically that of warmongering and potential motivations for either entering a war or letting an attack take place despite prior knowledge. The first angle suggests that US President Franklin Roosevelt was determined to aid Great Britain's efforts against the Nazis. So, despite direct opposition to the war from the US public, manipulated events in the Pacific to provoke a Japanese attack on US soil, or airspace, technically. So essentially you're saying there wasn't really enough support in America to go into the war, so uh, Roosevelt had to do it to drum support up. Essentially, yeah, the American public was. That very... is quite well known. Yeah, they were very against anti-war. In. See, yeah. this this is the thing. I know we do have a few American listeners, but America was whole against the idea of joining World War One and World War Two because uh, it's America was seen as a very much peaceful country in its constitution. And I mean, after World War Two, it, it just clearly gave up on that, didn't it? I suppose. I mean, after World War One, they had the Great Depression. I think, if I remember yeah. correctly, so. Yeah. They did take over as the number one economy around 1916, I think, during World War One. Yeah, but then under Roosevelt, they enabled his great boom uh, for just spending money, both through building infrastructure and everything like that. So then they want to see that slide again with the involvement in another war. So leading on from this first uh, potential for provoking the Japanese, 
The second part of the theory indicates the US had advanced knowledge of the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor and did not act on it in order to ensure the US entered World War II. Revisionist historians have highlighted decisions made regarding defence policy during his terms in office, as well as rhetoric used on the campaign trail by Roosevelt during his 1940 election, or bid to be re-elected. These were seen as underlying motivations to take the country to war, despite promising the American people he would not do so. By the time of the 1940 elections, World War II was already in full swing, following, as John mentioned, the Allied response to German invasion of Europe. As we said earlier, the American public strongly supported neutrality, with the belief that America's role in World War I had been a terrible decision, so determined not to enter another conflict. I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but do you mention how the Japanese for America were going to get involved in the war? Because not too much. No, not very yeah. much. They've got to go into a bit more, feel free. Yeah, I'll quickly mention it. Um, people always mention Pearl Harbor as a huge shock. Like People say it came totally out of the blue, but I mean, in the Japanese eyes, they believe that America were always going to enter the war, and so they wanted to get a step ahead. And that's why they destroyed the stationary fleet at Pearl Harbor. So, I mean, America would lose a lot of their ships before. Yeah, I actually don't really mention that at all. I'm just thinking it's purely from the American perspective. So it's quite interesting. I mean, I think I remember reading that a Japanese um, or senior military official said that Pearl Harbor strike was the strike that well, they won the battle, but they lost the war effectively by doing the Pearl Harbor attack. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, America had no choice but to get involved after it. So whether Japanese intelligence was right that America were going to join the war anyway? Or, I think like, they were almost certainly going to join anyway, because didn't America join the war on the day of Pearl Harbor? You can argue that their hand was forced by Pearl Harbor, but as I'll mention slightly later, they had been inching towards it with certain decisions and tactics. They were. I think it's they, a very American kind of way to do it. Leave Europe until it is, until like we get involved in any way, shape or form. So when the Lusitania got sunk in World War One, America finally joined World War One, and then it took the Pearl Harbor attack for them to join World War Two. So, like I say, as I mentioned later on, some of their actions could have been seen to be well jeopardizing their neutral status, basically provocative. Well, yes. So Roosevelt had made multiple statements outlining his commitment to keeping the U.S. out of another war, unless they were attacked by a foreign power. This was later interpreted as him saying that should the war come to US soil, it would no longer be classed as foreign. So the US would have every right to defend their country and to enter the fray. Makes sense. So at the time of his re-election, Roosevelt was well aware of public sentiment, yet determined to ensure that the Allied forces prevailed. This involved repealing several neutrality laws, which allowed the sales of arms to Allied forces, as well as convincing Congress to enact the first peacetime draft. These measures were all seen by the government as being strictly defensive, aimed at reinforcing their neutrality, but critics have highlighted these actions as being the first steps towards US involvement in the conflict. In fact, UK Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill foresaw this, saying that America's agreement to loan warships to the Allies set in motion a process that, like the Mississippi, it just keeps rolling along. I mean, it's very hard to claim neutrality when you're lending warships, isn't it? Yeah, these are these sort of measures I was alluding to earlier. Just little things, you know, they're not actually taking part in the conflict, but say like having a draft during peacetime almost signals, right, we're getting ready for something, we need more soldiers. So despite congressional approval of these measures, especially the leasing of the US warships, rendering the US all but belligerent in the conflict, they were still not directly participating in the war. These boundaries would be stretched further following incidents of German submarine attacks on two US ships, which led to an undeclared naval war against Germany. But still, Roosevelt was hesitant to ask for a formal declaration. He believed that he could obtain a public consensus in favour of war only if the country were attacked by a foreign power. 
with theorists alleging that he engineered this consensus by provoking the Japanese into attacking Pearl Harbor. A key piece of evidence revered by critics of Roosevelt was the infamous McCollum Memo, written on the 7th of October 1940 by Lieutenant Commander Arthur M. McCollum of the Office of Naval Intelligence. This document detailed 10 actions which had the potential to antagonize the Japanese. Specific measures included moving US warships into the Pacific, using Dutch and British bases and supplies in the Pacific, enacting a trade embargo with Japan, and also recommending that the US fleet was moved to Pearl Harbor. This memo remained classified until 1994 and contained the notable line, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. I think the thing with moving the fleet to Pearl Harbor that's interesting is there was a lot of native Japanese living in Hawaii, so it seems like the kind of place that you'd place it if you didn't want them to attack because you'd just assume that they wouldn't want to kill any of their own people. Because I feel like there's actually more native Japanese and white Americans in Hawaii at the time. You could spin it the other way, though, couldn't you? Because if there's Japanese people there, or Japanese natives, the US government could go, well, look, Japan will stop at nothing. They've even bombed uh, a ship stationed near some of their own people. So they're that dangerous and that cutthroat. But something needs to be done about it. Yeah, and I think, I guess they couldn't know that was coming with the infamous like Japanese honour code and kamikaze and the emperor comes before everything including your own life so i mean americans could have viewed the japanese as willing to sacrifice their own people yeah i suppose one thing for sure there's definitely japanese spies in hawaii that's been documented so this uh, memo is believed to be one of the smoking guns regarding roosevelt's involvement but there's uh, limited evidence to indicate that this memo ever made as far as the president's office which is one of the running themes of much of the evidence i'm going to present as part of this conspiracy theory it's all a case of or it's been suggested by theory but there's no official confirmations. As further evidence of Roosevelt's duplicity, theorists cite the fact that the administration failed to notify the military of decoded Japanese messages, indicating that an attack would take place on either the 6th or 7th of December. While conceding that Roosevelt engaged in deception and manipulation to advance his foreign policies, such claims have been rejected as reductionist and unconvincing. They lack the grounding to show that Roosevelt intentionally provoked the Japanese or allowed the country to be surprised at Pearl Harbor. This leads nicely onto the second part of the theory, the argument that US government officials had advanced knowledge of an imminent Japanese attack, having intercepted Japanese diplomatic and military messages detailing such attack. I think one thing I remember seeing about Japanese-American relations that could link in with the provocation is, um, I don't know if it was during, I think it was during the war, but before America joined the war, Japanese and American government officials met up and the American government sent in like their tallest and, you know, most muscular and most built officials and they completely towered over the Japanese officials. And these pictures, when sent back to Japan, kind of in a way worried the Japanese people. And that this would be the enemy that they might have to fight, these huge, powerful people. I don't know if America did it on purpose or their government officials are just built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I don't know. Imagine that sort of thing would definitely anger, say, maybe like a Kim Jong-un type character is quite insecure. Yeah. What effect does it have on well, the Japanese and now are known as being very polite, very considerate? Yeah. At time as well, I think the Americans were very racist towards the Japanese and thought they were kind of stupid and could never cope or never catch up with like American technology and stuff like that, which obviously angered the Japanese as well. And at the same time, surprised the Americans that the Japanese churned out these insane warplanes and warships in such a short period of time. Yeah, so it's like the fleets that attacked Pearl Harbor were the biggest Navy fleet ever assembled in the war. There's definitely tension between the two countries. 
So I think just some sort of geographically, Americans are taller than Japanese people. I'm not sure they've given some promotions to people who ever can bench press the most or is taller. <laughs> just in with these meetings to maybe make them feel insecure. But it's a bit of a petty move. But I probably wouldn't put it past them. Just, say, just as, I guess, a subliminal threat. Yeah. But I suppose what can a six foot two built American do against a kamikaze pilot who's willing to sacrifice his life for the emperor? Absolutely nothing, yeah. So, on the topic of kamikaze, the official narrative states that the US Navy was taken completely by surprise when, on the morning of the 7th of December 1941, the Japanese Navy Air Service attacked the US fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii. A total of 188 US aircraft were destroyed, 2,403 Americans were killed, with a further 1,178 injured. Later that day, Japan announced a declaration of war on the United States. So in response, Congress declared war on Japan the following day. Then on December the 11th, Germany and Italy each declared war on the US to responded with war declarations of their own. If the Axis had won the war, I think it would have been... I mean, obviously it wouldn't be interesting because of how <laughs> horrendous it would be, but it was just intriguing to know what would have happened because there's no way the Germans fit in the Japanese ideal race and there's obviously no way the Japanese fit within the Aryan super race ideology. So who'd have known what would have happened next? Yeah, plus there's some lines of thoughts who are basically critical of the um, Pearl Harbor official narrative that suggests that um, had Pearl Harbor not taken place, Nazis and the Soviet Union would just have wiped themselves out so of bringing into the war that way, which would meant we wouldn't have seen the two nuclear bombs being dropped. Did nuclear testing start before World War Two for America, or did they just manage to pull it off after Pearl Harbor? Well, I think they must have been testing, you know, the years leading up to it. But I suppose maybe fast tracked these in the war because yeah, it came sure. right at the end of. I mean, say the war had already been going on for six years by the time they dropped the first nuclear weapon. These things don't exactly happen overnight. So there are multiple um, reports that US intelligence services have intercepted Japanese diplomatic and military transmissions during the weeks leading up to the attack, even going so far as to suggest that the US Navy had prior knowledge of Japanese movements as they were en route to Pearl Harbor. The first of these codes were known as the bomb plot messages. These were intercepted in October and November of 1941 and contained plans from Tokyo for their spies to gather intelligence that detailed the layout of Pearl Harbor and specific locations of US ship moorings. Even after being decrypted and translated, this message was apparently not passed on to Navy commanders at Pearl Harbor, which theorists have, of course, suggested was to allow the attack to proceed as the Japanese had planned. Do you have what the actual decrypted code was? Because I remember it being quite obvious when I heard it myself. I mean, they'd mentioned before that they needed to refuel at a certain code word and it happened to be Pearl Harbor. And then in a later message, they mentioned that they were going to, you know, head towards that same code word. I don't actually have the specific um, codes for this. Um, this that's a uh, different code to the one I'm mentioning here. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite like cracking a German code using Enigma. It was quite a simplified code, to be honest, for such a big monumental attack. Yeah, I've heard that as well. But I think some of the other codes that the US reportedly cracked were a lot more complicated and took a lot yeah. more work. I'll say for the Enigma one, there was a bit of a, say, a stroke of, I think, three Polish people were able to build a replica of the Enigma machine that the Germans used, which was then sort of used by Turing and his team to properly start cracking the German messages. Didn't they find the instructions? I was probably oversimplifying it a bit. They got their hands on one, didn't they? I think they were able to build a replica from some, I don't know, readouts or blueprints or whatever it was. 
Yeah, more they reverse engineered it rather than actually trying to crack the code. Yeah, because it was uncrackable. So the Americans weren't able to reverse engineer. So any codes they were cracking, they did have to do the say the long way. Bit Sudoku in the morning. <laughs> I'm sure I read somewhere that if the like modern day computers, if they were given the Enigma code, could crack it in like. 10 seconds or something. That's crazy. Yeah, it's mad. One of these codes, though, there was nothing within these specific bomb plot messages that indicated any plans for attack. It was so likely these reports just part of routine surveillance that all countries maintained during wartime. So they literally did just state the locations of ships and just the layout of Pearl Harbor from the air, I think. So there's no direct evidence that Roosevelt knew about these particular transmissions. Despite reported assertions for his biographers that believed he was receiving intelligence summaries regarding Pearl Harbor, as well as reading the actual raw decryptions. So another Japanese code, which was dubbed Purple and used by the Foreign Office and only for diplomatic messages, was broken by army cryptographers in 1940. A 14-part message using this code sent from Japan to its embassy in Washington was decoded on the 6th and 7th of December. The message, which outlines Japanese intention to break off diplomatic relations with the United States, was to be delivered by the Japanese ambassador at 1pm Washington time which was dawn in the Pacific. This was then interpreted as the Japanese intention to attack at dawn somewhere in the Pacific. Warnings were sent to American bases in the area, including Hawaii, but due to atmospheric conditions, the messages were delayed and not received until the attack was already underway. There are claims that the Japanese Navy did not explicitly mention Pearl Harbor, but that no purple traffic pointed towards that location, as the foreign office was routinely excluded from sensitive or secret material, including war planning. It was also possible that any such intercepts were not translated until after the attack, or indeed after the war ended. But in both instances, all traffic from these pre-attack intercepts had not been yet declassified and released to public domain, rendering any such claims indeterminate. I think I remember reading that the actual decryption that it was going to be Pearl Harbor was just done by like a random guy. And I, I think we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but someone just listening to radio transmissions and he just happened to hear one of the Japanese pilots' radio transmissions, which <laughs> uh, stated that they were heading towards Pearl Harbor. Same bombs away. <laughs> and I, I've seen a documentary on this and he did contact um, the American Navy. And, I mean, as you can kind of expect, a guy with a walkie-talkie just tuning into random things. And I mean, Japanese random things as well. Guy didn't even speak Japanese, but somehow, <laughs> um, yeah, they just laughed it off really. Because it just seems such a unlikely attack. Mm-hmm. I suppose on that uh, topic, the next sort of point I would make is that there's were reports of that suggest some some ships, like I think it was a cruise line or something, on a routine journey from Florida to Hawaii, intercepted Japanese transmissions from the approaching warships, which recorded unusual radio traffic in a telegraphic language differed from international Morse codes. This is accounted by accounts from surviving officers from the Japanese ships, which stated there was no radio traffic to have been overheard by anyone. The radio operators were left in Japan to send fake traffic and all radio transmitters aboard the ships were physically disabled to prevent any inadvertent or unauthorized broadcast contributing to maintaining a very very strict radio silence which ensured their warships preserved the element of surprise can you imagine if you're on a cruise ship near hawaii the morning of pearl harbor and you just see like the largest air <laughs> time going over like bombers and you know heading to the u.s navy base i think you'd be counting yourself lucky you're heading away oh i was <laughs> heading away from america that's where you think they'd be heading but sipping your mojito on the uh, deck enjoying yourself <laughs> knowing that you're heading heading away from- yeah so there were multiple reports that the japanese were very strict with their how they communicated using no radio transmissions they relied on sort of using spotlights and flag signals just to maintain that element of surprise 
Another angle that suggests a prior knowledge of the attack or letting it go ahead was the fact that there were none of the three US Pacific Fleet aircraft carriers moored in Pearl Harbor when the attack came. Yeah, I think people say if, if Japan had managed to seek those three carriers, they would have almost definitely won the war. Yeah, those three carriers helped America hugely win the Battle of Midway. That's an interesting one because as a result of Pearl Harbor, US Navy tactics had to change drastically to actually rely on aircraft carriers before they, they saw the capital ships as being destroyed and the warships and um, aircraft carriers are actually kind of ironically seen as being expendable. But by seeing how effective they were deployed by the Japanese, able to just launch squadrons of planes from relative safety in, in the ocean, soon became, after Pearl Harbor, the most valuable part of the US Navy. So that's one such fact that sort of disproves this theory. As well, and also the more tangible aspect is in, um, two of the carriers were actually on active operations at that time within the Pacific Fleet. So the, the Enterprise and Lexington were both on missions to de- deliver fighters to Wake and then Midway Islands, while the third, the Sarotoga, was in routine refit at the Bremerton shipyard. So this is probably a lucky coincidence, you could say, for the US Navy that they had already say, scrambled these ships. These ships were already active. Maybe the one being out for Pez is a bit more of a, say, a smoking gun that's being very conspiracy-heavy. I guess for a neutral country, though, you would say it's quite suspicious to have that all three of the aircraft carriers in the Pearl Harbor base out and about. Yeah, I suppose especially these two ships were on missions to deliver fighters to um, their bases. But one of them um, at the time of the attack was actually heading back to harbour. The Enterprise had been delayed by adverse weather. So it found itself about 200 miles west of Pearl Harbor. But this was again delayed. I'm not sure why. It was meant to be in port around 7 o'clock, but it never made it back for that time. Perhaps fortunately. Probably because it was 200 miles away. How long was that taking a boat? I suppose I think it was due back at 7. I think it was scheduled to be in the bit late. Not sure what time it was when it was 200 miles away, but that's just what the reports say. Going at 7.01. <laughs> just pulled up as the first Japanese planes are striking, like, oh, what have <laughs> we just sailed into? <laughs> turn around, turn around, reverse. Like you'd see it coming from home because you're moving quite slowly as an aircraft carrier. Given stories of Japanese punctuality, you wouldn't be surprised to hear if they'd managed to, like, get a ship in for, like, bang on the exact time they're saying, like, 200 <laughs> miles away, so the Americans yeah. can learn something from them. <laughs> also, interestingly, the first um, shots of Pearl Harbor were actually fired by the US Navy, who happened upon a small Japanese um, submarine whose periscope was showing just above the surface of the waters outside Pearl Harbor. The American destroyer Ward was launched and sank a submarine at 6.37 a.m., just over an hour before the Japanese first struck from the air. So I think these uh, submarines were deployed by the larger submarines, they call it midget subs, just a two-person vessel. Is that PC these days? That's the technical term. That's, <laughs> but yeah, so they went over to Pearl Harbor just to wait on the surface, only to strike when they heard the planes and the cavalry arriving. I think one might have gotten a, which happened to be spotted by a US ship returning to port. So they got the destroyer involved. So the US were actually could be described as the aggressor. <laughs> At the very least, you would have thought it would put them on high alert seeing that. But I suppose if you say they only had an hour to prepare, there's only a limited amount of stuff you can do in an hour. Yeah, exactly. In terms of defending yourself. Yeah, so as for being the aggressor, just coincidence, the, the entire Japanese Navy is yeah. min- minutes away from striking just the time you just damn scuttle the uh, sub. Turns out Pearl Harbor was reacting this whole time yeah I mean of course it's also widely recognised obviously widely recognised it's official that Pearl Harbour was a war crime because there was no official declaration of war because I think it was actually delayed so the Japanese couldn't send it in time before Pearl they actually arrived <laughs> got lost in the post or something along those lines there was something about how they had intended to send something to Washington 
and depict the end of diplomatic relations. Just just say as uh, the entire fleet is arriving on US doors. <laughs> Don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> Can you imagine if they actually hadn't just got lost in the post? <laughs> they're just like so surprised when they rocked up at Pearl Harbor and the Americans didn't bother like. Turns out they gave them like a month's notice. <laughs> <laughs> There's also allegations that the British had significant advance warnings of the attack as early as mid-November 1941, but chose not to reveal them so as to ensure America's entry in the war. Of course, these lack evidence and cannot be confirmed along with many other allegations made as part of the conspiracy theory. There are also several documents pertaining to the attack that have not been released to the public, including reports in Churchill's personal records and documents detailing Japanese naval movements. And many documents were also destroyed during the war due to fears of an impending Japanese invasion of Hawaii. Naturally, this spawned much speculation and debate as to the role of Roosevelt in this monumental date which will live in infamy as his post-attack speech recounted, so it's an infamous day in American history. So, did he play a role in pushing the Japanese hand to give a perfect excuse for the US to enter the war? Or was Pearl Harbor exactly as it seemed? A devastating surprise attack by the Japanese Imperial Navy that would ultimately signal the beginning of their demise. Over to you guys. Well, firstly, in terms of a rating as a theory, got to go for it. Okay, 8 out of 10 on that one. Pearl Harbor, one of the biggest events in history, and, you know, it's always spoken of as a, almost a complete surprise. So, and yeah, almost like unprovoked and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, for, for it to have been maybe known about and uh, let to happen as, you know, some other big events may or may not have been, I think, yeah, it's got to be an 8 out of 10 on that. In terms of uh, believability, I think there's, there's some really good stuff on it. I suppose the main thing is you do kind of think, how can they not have even had an inkling that they were going to get dragged into the war? Especially by Japan, like you say, as, as Luke kind of touched on as well, that there'd been meetings during the war. Don't know specifically what they were about, but you could you could always assume America, especially after World War One, that they were always going to get dragged in at some point. And kind of as you mentioned, it, it doesn't surprise me that they were actively keeping an eye out, trying to crack codes, listening to comms, and that they had intercepted a message, kind of giving a clue that it might happen. But they thought, well, this is our perfect excuse to get in because obviously it's well known that FDR was probably quite keen to join the war and. You can kind of see why, just in terms of self-preservation, if nothing else, because they were always going to get dragged in eventually, or at least attacked, just caught in the crossfire sort of thing, especially with the ties to the UK. So yeah, with obviously public opinion being so heavily against joining the war, it was always going to be difficult to justify going in. So yeah, perhaps it was a case of, you know, maybe getting wind that there'd be an attack, maybe not specifically Pearl Harbor, but kind of turning a blind eye to it, letting it play out, see what happened, and then um, seeing whether their hands were forced and joining it that way. So I think believability-wise, I'm going to go for a 6 out of 10. Oh, that's quite high. That's good stuff there, yeah. yeah. I suppose you can see where it's coming from. You think if your hand is forced, I think the America's public would respond far better to that thing. Oh, we've got to now defend our great nation. I think and so the attack of the magnitude of Pearl Harbor just sent shockwaves through the country realise, right, we can't sit, stand by any further, any longer. Yeah, exactly, because you never know if they would have stood by. What And what's to say the Japanese wouldn't have thought, well, they didn't respond to that, so we may as well get them again. And plus, maybe to do a bit of a more revisionist history, you think had um, the Nazis or the Axis forces prevailed and America hadn't entered the war, they would then see America as right, they're still allies with what was Great Britain and the Allied forces. And in the past, they would probably be opposed to our rule. Plus, it may have turned the Allies against them, kind of saying, well, mm. why didn't you join? We, we really could have done with you, sort of thing. Exactly. What about you, Luke? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conspiracy, and Pearl Harbor is always going to lead to conspiracies just because of how much of a surprise 
we're made to believe it is and how much of a surprise it really was at the time it really does beg the question whether Japanese intelligence had something on America that suggested America were almost certainly going to join the war Japan were doing very well in the war before they attacked Pearl Harbor of course and they'd taken a lot of China they'd taken Korea obviously years ago they had Hong Kong they had Singapore and I mean they were making their ways across Asia at a rate of knots so it kind of seems weird that they're trying to go push out on another front without any knowledge as to suggest that America were going to try and put a halt to their proceedings. Additionally, I think the thing that you could argue here is that Pearl Harbor could have gone very, very differently if you, as you mentioned, the three American aircraft carriers were there. Arguably, Japan could have won the Pacific War. And again, that leads to more conspiracies as to why they weren't there, um, because uh, essentially they ended up winning America the war. Um, so as conspiracy overall, I think it's really interesting and there's a lot of good angles to it. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Ooh. In terms of believability, despite the overwhelming opinion in America that they should stay out of Europe's war and obviously Asia's war, too, I guess. I think Roosevelt probably felt that they could do something about it. You know, Europe was wiping itself out. Europe was pretty weak. The Japanese forces were obviously weakening. They were coming up against resistance. And America was one of the most powerful militaries in the world at the time, of course. And given all this intelligence, you wouldn't be surprised if he wanted to somehow find a way to get America involved in the war because it doesn't really take a genius to work out a huge power joining a war that is weakened all sides is going to swing the war in the favour of the side it joins. Yes, and it was widely reported that Roosevelt wanted to assist the Allied forces whatever way he could just without the US actually physically entering the war themselves. Yeah, and I mean, it was going to be at a huge sacrifice of lives for America, but if America won, which was likely given the way things were going and their huge power, it was going to be such a huge, huge morale boost for America in general. Mm -hmm. um, so you wouldn't be surprised if he was trying to push that decision somehow. I'm not too sure whether he was, but the thing that is really damning for me is that they did somehow know that Pearl Harbor was going to happen. I think the aircraft carriers is just suspicious beyond belief and there's so many instances of Japanese code being decrypted suggesting that an attack was coming and it was pushed up to the highest military commandment and just kind of brushed aside but I guess you just have to question how often people get intelligence that's just a load of crap and that's why they end up just ignoring the ones that don't have huge evidence mm. behind them so yeah I, I think I do find it pretty believable I think America were always destined to join the war no matter what so I am going to give it a 6 out of 10. Yeah, that's good stuff there. I think just um, say expanding on what you just said on your last point, I suppose you mentioned the suspicious things. I think you also stated that the US government weren't sure where was going to be attacked. Surely the fact that there's almost certainly Japanese knew the majority of the US fleet was stationed at Pearl Harbor, surely that would be there area that it would target because it was known that US moved a large portion of their navy to Pearl Harbor. I mean I think as well it's quite a logical place for the Japanese to attack as it's the nearest American point to them and probably limited fuel in planes at the time and planes can travel as far as they can today with it as easy they were probably always going to go for a more convenient point. Almost if you're putting a conspiracy hat on a perfect storm of occurrences. So yeah, I think I'm definitely going to rate this conspiracy. I think it's solid 8.5. Yeah, one thing I will mention as well, John was kind of shocked earlier when you said the ship was 200 miles away and like how long does it take for a ship to move that distance? And that just begs the question, like how long were these Japanese ships heading towards... I know, did think that as well. That did they not see him coming? I mean, like, surely, surely America has intelligence in the Pacific Ocean like at all times. I mean, it's wartime. And in a documentary I've seen, like the Japanese were surprised that they weren't caught on the way out there because it was it wasn't just a one-day event it was a you know a couple of days it took them to get over there and they weren't mm. spotted at all supposedly 
Yeah, I've heard that as well, how easy it almost was just to get to Pearl Harbor and attack without any resistance. Whilst Pearl Harbor was tactically genius, I think the Japanese themselves said there's a 50-50 chance they'd get spotted on the way there. And it, it does seem ludicrous that the American wouldn't have intelligence surveying that area. Yeah, surely you'd have um, sort of planes just doing how many tracking flights and UK um, military reports we did during the war. you think the US would be doing the same thing. It's just if they are even gearing up to potentially enter the war, they'd be um, monitoring, keeping tabs on Japan at least. Yeah. And I think as well, what makes Pearl Harbor so special and the conspiracy even greater is the element of surprise, because with the technology we've got today, you're just never really going to be allowed that element of surprise again. Absolutely. I think from the, just for those reasons we've mentioned and the ones I stated earlier, this one does get quite a high believability from me against, say, six out of ten, because say, it's been well documented how keen Roosevelt was to join the war, to support his allies and for the amount of intelligence they had at their disposal, which may or may not have been passed up through the command chain or been overlooked. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny looking at it today that America back in World War Two and World War One was supposedly the neutral pacifist country. Oh, yeah. It seems to be such a polar opposite today. Like Roosevelt today would have no no need to carry out any of this if he really did. He's seen as one of the great US presidents as well, with, uh, looking back at his tenure. Is it because he died during the war? He always tends to make your legacy. Well, it's a way to soften public opinion towards you. But he did think of his economic reform. So he did quite a lot uh, during the 30s. I was going to say, I think any president or prime minister that wins the war is always going to go down as a hero. But then I remember Joseph Stalin. Well, (laughs) depends on your worldview, we'll say that much. But say Winston Churchill's regarded by most as being an upstanding British hero. Well, he was. Oh, yeah, about well, a month we won't, ago. We won't, I mean, we won't get into that. No. I'll throw it back to you, John. All right. So my theory revolves around Hitler still being alive, or more specifically that he did not die at the end of the war in 1945, as is the official narrative, because if he were alive today, he'd actually be 131 years old. <laughs> the superior Aryan race he always wanted to cultivate in Germany, so maybe he has <laughs> figured out the secret to immortality. Maybe, maybe he's 28 uh, feet tall with blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> maybe those pesky German scientists finally figured out immortality. <laughs> you never know. Well, they did enough experiments during the war. I'll touch on those in a bit. Officially, on the 30th of April 1945, the day after his wedding to Eva Braun, Hitler shot himself in the head when he discovered that Soviet troops were minutes away from discovering him in the bunker he was hiding in. Upon discovery, Hitler's body was doused in petrol, burnt, but not cremated as the flames weren't hot enough. So, as a result, some of his remains were allegedly taken by the Soviets. His corpse is said to have been buried and then exhumed numerous times along the way. In 1970, Hitler's alleged coffin was finally taken out of the ground and crushed by the Russians and held in Moscow. It stayed there until in 2009, a piece of the skull supposedly belonging to Hitler was medically examined and was actually found to be that of a 35-year-old woman, more than likely his wife, Eva Braun, who had committed suicide with a cyanide pill. This finding raised many questions, given the body thought to have been Hitler's for the last 64 years was actually not his. People began to question where the real body had been all this time, or whether there was actually a body found by the Soviet soldiers in 1945 at all. Surely if you were to fake your own death, we're going to go down that angle, I'd say try and conspiracy moments, and you want to hide some evidence, you wouldn't hide um, a skull of the opposite gender to your own. Difficult to tell from a skull, and I suppose the way the it may have kind of got messed up is that they took supposedly a body, burnt it, so then you probably couldn't tell at that point, and I suppose you don't know what happened with any of the bodies from that point 
point on, they were buried and then exhumed numerous times. And it could have been any old thing. But basically, the body that they thought was Hitler's that had been in Moscow for decades. They got medically examined and then it wasn't. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the like, Chinese whispers effect of just as we go through the years, things get uh, muddled up. Yeah, it's impossible to keep track of whose corpse and whose remains are whose. Yeah. Even though you think with Hitler, you, if his body was burned, presumably by off his offices or something, just trying to cover it up. If you're the Russians discovering Hitler's body, you wouldn't want to destroy evidence of it, I don't think. No, I agree, which I suppose... I kind of come onto it later, but part of it is perhaps that it was actually just another male that they took, as well as Eva, and then they kind of got mixed up or whatever. So, at the end of the war, following Hitler's reported death, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin told the then-recently deceased President Franklin D. Roosevelt's close confidant, Harry Hopkins, that Hitler was still alive. Within days, Soviet Marshal Zhukov had also reversed course and said that the Fuhrer's body had not actually been found by the Soviet soldiers and that he may indeed have escaped. The Soviets' claims soon gained ground in Berlin and began to be reported in Allied newspapers too. Thus, in July 1945, British newspapers reported comments by a Russian officer that a charred body discovered by the Soviets was a very poor double and was categorically not Hitler's. Across the Atlantic, US newspapers ran quotes attributed to the Russian garrison commandant of Berlin that Hitler had gone into hiding somewhere in Europe with the Spanish dictator General Francisco Franco fingered for potentially sheltering him. There were known rat lines leading out of Germany during the Second World War, and these are basically secret routes for Nazis to escape using in the aftermath of the war via submarines or German U-boats. And the two primary routes both led to South America, the first leading specifically to Argentina, which is where many believe Hitler to have fled, having been flown out of Berlin to a Nazi airbase in Denmark, where he then travelled to Argentina by submarine. One thing I will say about um, this whole German war criminals going to South America by is that uh, my girlfriend's landlord last year was... Um from South America and he had the surname Jaeger which is quite a German sounding surname and he was an absolute nutter an absolute dickhead so I mean I've put it to almost certainty that he was some kind of relative of a Nazi war criminal <laughs> yeah, well, he could well have been. I'll come on to that in a minute. But yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. So yeah, in his 2002 book, The Real Odessa, Argentine researcher Uki Gurney, apologies Uki if I've butchered your name, used oh, well. new access... <laughs> used new access to the country's archives to show that Argentine diplomats and intelligence officers had, on then-fascist President Juan Perón's instructions, vigorously encouraged Nazi and fascist war criminals to make their home in Argentina, and that further rat lines to aid this were set up using Scandinavia, Switzerland and Belgium. As well as Perón, there were numerous wealthy benefactors in Argentina that funded the Nazi party through the 1920s and 30s, and tens of thousands of high-ranking Nazi officers are said to have escaped to Argentina using these rat lines over the years to follow. Joseph Mengele, either of you heard of him? I recognise the name. I know who he is, he's the guy who did all the experiments on twins in Auschwitz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the horrendous experiments. You know. Yeah. I think he's known as the Angel of Death. Correct. So yeah, he's nicknamed the Angel of Death for his treatment and his unethical experiments on those concentration camps. And he was one of those who actually fled to Argentina and he lived there until his death in 1979. His horrors included euthanizing 300,000 mentally ill prisoners after deeming them not fit to work, as well as harmful, intrusive experiments on twins. In 1960... Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, spent two years trying to track down Mengele in Argentina so that he could be brought to trial. But despite finding his personal documents stating he now had Argentine citizenship, as well as having an incentive of a reward set out from West Germany for his capture, he was never found. 
Many Nazi settlements were even set up across South America following the arrival of these Nazi soldiers, including famously Colonia Dignidad, or the Colony of Dignity, which was supposed to be a paradise-like place, but became infamous for its torture, forced labour and murder of any that didn't act with the desired levels of civility towards high-ranking officers, disagreed with the political beliefs of the Nazis or disobeyed orders. This may be, let's say, a little bit, uh, a bit maybe naive, but I'm just picturing now these sort of like man in the high castle type, just Nazi flags everywhere in this place in, in Argentina. So I think if people wanted to find them, they wouldn't exactly be making it quite that difficult. It's actually still quite common. There's a lot of these far-right beliefs held in certain areas of South America and Argentina. And there, are, as Luke kind of touched on, there's a hell of a lot of descendants of these German deserters. I think they actually uh, found Meng- Mengele's son, who basically said his father was absolutely horrendous and showed no remorse but at the same time this was after Mengele died he said that there was no way he was going to give give his location no exactly he certainly showed no remorse so yeah Mengele also took a role as the head of the hospital for the colony that he stayed in to this day such settlements still exist with strict Nazi beliefs Interestingly, and a bit like kind of creepily as well, the uh, settlement where Mengele famed for his obsession and experiments on twins, where he worked for some time, has the highest ratio of twins born on the planet. 10% of births there are twins, whereas the global average is 0.4%, 25 times lower. He's picked his place of residence pretty well then. Basically, the theory is that perhaps he made some serious breakthroughs in his research during his time there. And actually, this isn't kind of coincidence. This is something to do with his research, yeah. There's also a town in Argentina that just speak Welsh. The Welsh Welsh shut up a colony in Argentina as they were worried that their language was going to die out. And it's still going today. (laughs) That's pretty cool, to be fair. Yeah, that that one's way more um, lighthearted than the uh, um, (laughs) Mengele twin approach. And that twins point genuinely is legit. I looked it up at loads of different sources. Surely can't be coincidence. I mean, the thing is, surely there's obviously genetical reasons why twins are born. And I mean, there's just no one that's been sick enough to test it out. And when he's been able to test it out as much as he had, he probably was eventually like come across them. I don't, I don't bit controversial. I don't realize how many say, breakthroughs did come out of this Nazi, some of the Nazi research. I mean, yeah, because I'm sure this research was not done with the level of science ever again, or has ever been done. Nothing was off limits. Yes. Well, they had so many like patients didn't they yeah. to, to choose from they had like millions and millions of Jews that were taken and experimented on type of scale you'd, you'd never see again and also it's you know it's no secret that a lot of the leading Nazi scientists and engineers actually went to work for NASA yeah there yeah, you go yeah. they did yeah they're Scott. incredible scientists just messed up in the end <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> so yeah so back to Hitler then declassified FBI files show that in 1955 Ten years after the end of World War II and Hitler's supposed death, the FBI ploughed millions of dollars into searching for Hitler. In 2014, over 700 FBI documents were declassified, revealing that the US government had undertaken an investigation in the late 1940s and 1950s as to the report of the possible escape of Adolf Hitler from Germany into Argentina. Now, these files were heavily redacted so as not to include too much sensitive detail, but it's made quite clear from them, you know, it is listed out in literally black and white that these uh, claims were being investigated and millions of dollars were being poured into searching for him. So uh, included in these 700 uh, pages of documents are statements naming people and places involved in Hitler's alleged journey from Germany to South America, including mention of the rat lines that were already in existence. Additional CIA documents reported sightings and a photograph of a man alleged to be Hitler in 1954. 
Claim related to the photograph was made by a former German SS trooper named Philip Citroen, who stated that Hitler was still alive and that he left Colombia for Argentina around January 1955. Citroen claimed to know Hitler and that he had met him on numerous occasions in Argentina and even provided a photograph of himself with Hitler dated 1954. It's pretty mad, isn't it? Might ruin your conspiracy, but I wonder if there's any theories that Hitler ended up getting some kind of plastic surgery and ended up being Che Guevara. (laughs) Not really going to touch on it, but there are a lot of theories saying that he did undergo surgery, as I suppose you probably would. I think the first step yeah, would be yeah. getting rid of that moustache. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with that in Trim as well. <laughs> yeah, James Trim. Yeah, I've certainly heard the plastic surgery stuff a lot. I came across that quite a lot, but I don't know about turning to Che Guevara. Grey Wall, The Escape of Adolf Hitler, which is by British authors Simon Dunstan and Gerard Williams, also states that Hitler used these rat lines and that President Perón's support was also vital in getting him access to Argentina, where he moved to a Bavarian-starred mansion at Inalco, a remote and barely accessible spot at the northwest end of Lake Nahul Haipu, close to the Chilean border. A fourth right was allegedly planned by Hitler and his followers during their time in Argentina, and although the Nazi settlements caused a lot of damage to the local areas, they clearly never reached a global scale. Regardless of if Hitler did in fact survive the war, it is clear that such plans for a fourth right ultimately failed, and he never gained any serious political or military power following World War II. So I guess this kind of begs the question that if it ever is confirmed that he did actually survive the end of World War II, does it even really matter go the fourth right when there's the adage if you don't first you don't succeed try try again but there's not succeeding and then there's losing a world war (laughs) again and realizing one of the most hated men in in all of history if not the most (laughs) i don't know if you mentioned this but what was the rationale behind argentina allowing these nazi settlements it was was their president yeah so peron actively was encouraging it okay and they also donated uh, millions of pounds during the 20s and 30s to the nazi political campaign fair enough so he basically was welcoming him in he wanted them to come to argentina because the thing i was going to say is like sure Surely, out of anyone, they wouldn't take Hitler in. But then you could probably argue that Mengele is worse than Hitler. Crimes he committed. So. I think there's quite a lot. It's actually quite quite a lot of people who kind of admit that there were a lot of people worse than Hitler within like those Goebbels. Nazi ranks. Yeah, yeah Goebbels, Mengele. There's, there's quite a few. Hitler was maybe hit for his mastermind. Or he he never kind of explicitly asked yeah. for these experiments to be done. I don't think, but they were kind of given free reign. Yeah. Hitler was just a great speaker as well. So that's why he was kind of... He was very charismatic. That's one of those ones, all these people saying, oh, I would have rebelled against Hitler. <laughs> You'd have been laughing at Pop He was a populist leader for a reason. <laughs> when, when you're fed so much propaganda as well, you totally know what's going on. Okay, so to conclude, I guess I'm asking you to kind of rate the theory based on the fact that Hitler never actually committed suicide at the end of the Second World War and that he used these rat lines to escape into South America, where he was then shielded by uh, kind of Nazi sympathisers, as well as other escaped Nazi soldiers. And they kind of ran mini settlements and mini Nazi camps. They were actually quite horrible places as well, um, but obviously never reached any sort of global scale. Uh, and yeah, he, he, I think he died there. I don't know what of. But yeah, what do you, what do you reckon, guys? Without doubt, it's such a fantastic conspiracy that, you know, Hitler was still alive and pulling some strings and i mean it's not even really up for debate is it that the other german scientists themselves were kind of all there and given what they've done in the past these guys clearly have no remorse and no morals you would not put it past them doing some more horrific things in these nazi settlements i mean given how popular hitler was and how so many other prominent nazis managed to survive through these rat lines you wouldn't be surprised if the germans did absolutely everything to get the same done for hitler and 
I mean, the fact his body was never properly identified also puts this up for debate. Well, even come the end of the Second World War, there were still huge numbers of people who, in Germany who were pro-Nazi and pro-Hitler. Yeah, that, sure. that yeah. Especially the soldiers would have, like you say, done everything they could to get him out and to follow his orders and go to Argentina if that's where they were being told to go. Yeah. All in all, I have to give this one a 9.5 out of 10. Oh, wow. I find it really interesting for sure. And I mean, I know there's like things online with like Nazi hunters who've gone to Argentina to try and like find prominent Nazis and a few of them have had success. In terms of believability, to be honest, it's actually really believable just because, I mean, obviously we know that these Nazis did end up in South America and why not Hitler as well? It kind of gives me the creeps that <laughs> somehow Hitler was still pulling some strings and you know, I wouldn't put it past him having some kind of influence over Maradona to do the hand of God that <laughs> England out the World Cup famously. Didn't Argentina actually throw a World Cup against Germany as well? Well, yeah, exactly. You never know. You could have had a hand. One for football conspiracies part two. <laughs> yeah, Hitler was pulling the string. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to say that one for conspiracy. Yeah. I guess this one's something that I've never really thought of. It's something that I've always known that there's been so many Nazis in South America. But yeah, I've never really looked into it and I didn't know as such that Hitler's body had never been properly identified. And yeah, without doubt, there could be a very strong case for him of surviving and gotten out there because so many obviously went undiscovered. Mengele himself obviously went undiscovered until he died. So so when Mossad went looking, they found like his passport and stuff and they found his citizenship documents that he had officially uh, become an Argentine citizen, but they never found him. Yeah, I really leaning more towards the side that he did commit suicide with Eva Braun, but I'm actually going to give this one a 7 out of 10 for believability that Hitler did. Oh, brilliant. Callum, any advances on that? If you look at this through the context of any TV show or film, if there's no body, they're not dead. And it's quite <laughs> inconclusive as to whether there was an actual body found, whether it was just someone else who was the unlucky intern or something, right? You're going to be Hitler's body, pop a bullet in him and set fire to him while we usher Hitler out through the rat lines. Then, of course, the whole mix, or say mix serves with Russia thinking they had... Hitler's remains turn out to be Eva Braun's skull they found, but potentially Eva Braun's a female skull. They know that much. Mm-hmm. And plus you do think that given all of this information about far-right sympathy within Argentina and how they were almost like actively encouraging officers and ranking officials to escape to their shores, why not Hitler as well? Well, the one thing that maybe slightly pulls it down for me, you say that they were enacting their Nazi style camps in Argentina it's not exactly hiding in plain sight is it you'd think the fact there were these known locations where ex-German officials were hanging out for an extended holiday <laughs> in the I, think, I think to be fair the more prominent ones did go a bit more undercover and just yeah you know, these camps yeah. are still going on as well but I suppose there's no real incentive to go over yes they're far right but it certainly doesn't justify some sort of invasion to go over and put a stop to them so mm. I suppose they were just kind of thinking oh well <laughs> let them do what they want to do yeah. blow I off some steam it's a great starting point though if you were to want to start looking for Hitler back when he first discovered yeah. them well, they did, though. I mean, you say that. They did investigate yeah. Argentina and the links, the FBI. They were quite openly far-right as well and openly sending money over to the Nazi regime. But yeah, I suppose as the conspiracy theories go, it's one I've heard before but never really thought to look into so much. So this has opened my eyes a bit. It's, I guess, a 9 out of 10 for me. It's brilliant. Thank you very what, much. Always told until Hitler committed suicide. 
did as the Russians were closing in. I hit was quite a proud man, you'd imagine. To commit suicide, like, let's go out to the wind. But surely, like, self-preservation would be much more his style. Yeah, just given what they were doing, you don't really expect him to have that much fear and emotion, really. He has no. passion, but you just don't expect him to be that fear. Yeah, especially because, actually, he only he did realise the war was lost. But it wasn't lost for another... wasn't officially lost for another fair few months. And he was never actually discovered by the Soviet troops. They discovered his corpse. So the official story goes that he got wind that the Soviet troops were two blocks away. Now, that's to use American terms. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I don't think it's very not, far. It's not far at all, though. Yeah. So he was in his bunker. They were allegedly two blocks away. And then that's when he made the decision. I suppose you could say rather than be captured, he wanted to go out on his own terms. But Try and send some last commands out. You haven't got much time. So he's a bit of a split second decision. But you don't have much thinking time. Right, that's okay. Don't be get captured. Get me out of here. <laughs> You'd think as well, if they did find his corpse rather than burn it, they would have think they'd bring it back to Yeah, you'd think they'd almost like hang it up on a stick and say, Look, here's the here's yeah. this most evil guy, we finally found him, let's humiliate him. Yeah, I mean say so a gun's gonna make a mess of someone's head, but do you think there'd be enough distinct uh, features for Hitler especially to show right this this was Hitler if he had committed suicide by shooting himself? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they still did kind of put it on show because they had it in Moscow for like 40 years or something. But it wasn't actually the body. That was just the burnt bits. And there was, you couldn't even make much out of it. So you would think if they were going to bring it to Moscow and almost have it as a, a war decoration, that they would have taken the whole body rather than burn it and then buried it and then exhumed it numerous times and then eventually settled on just a few crumbs almost <laughs> that settled in Moscow. Yeah, so I suppose as believability goes... It does seem slightly far-fetched just how it was dystopian it seems the Nazis escaped just right we we're going to regroup come back in a few years with the fourth right and these camps are still there like, there is still a big far-right presence there I don't know if they have any plans for global do- uh, like domination God, can you imagine mm. 2020 the end the Nazis are back coronavirus vaccine comes out next week <laughs> <laughs> not even ruling it out guess who's back bitches <laughs> Bill Gates is actually Hitler and he has <laughs> become immortal now that would be a timeline for 2021 <laughs> as i read today as well it was on lad bible but it said the like mind calendar actually predicts the world's going to end on 21st of december 2020 so talk about let's have let's have world war four with the nazis back and then let's go out of a bank wouldn't be opposed to that <laughs> be fair if you could guarantee me the world was going to end that day i'd probably fly out to argentina and try and find these camps and take them <laughs> you may as well i suppose let's um, get back to the matter at hand which is my believability rating and Again, I'm going to go quite high, I just think, because of all the, the facts, all the evidence you presented. It does seem like a bit of a loose rationale for Hitler killing himself rather than trying to keep his ideals going and to escape with the rest of his, his officers to Argentina, who seems like provided a readily available safe haven for him. They said they had all these rat lines and means of escape. And I'm, there's no doubt Hitler would have had contingency plans, you think, especially as he was noticing the tide starting to turn against him. Let's say we always always said that Germany trying to take Russia was on the things that led to their demise, on their biggest mistakes. So yeah, I think all in all, I'm going to go for I'm going to go for a six out of ten on the believability front. So I think it's more plausible than implausible. Yeah, I'll take that all day long. So yeah, I'll very quickly give my thoughts. Really enjoyed this conspiracy. I mean, it would be one of the biggest kind of media storms of all time if it was found out Hitler didn't actually die at the end of the war, even though he'd almost certainly be dead now. So yeah, I think overall as a conspiracy, I'm going to go with a 9 out of 10. And then in terms of believability, it was one of those where I went into it thinking, oh, there's not going to be very much on this. And then I just found myself going deeper and deeper and 
getting quite convinced by the end. The fact that there are known rat lines and routes out of Germany to Argentina, the fact that the FBI had have publicly spent millions of dollars in searching for Hitler, which is a bit of a smoking gun that there was at least thought to possibly be some truth in it by the FBI. Plenty of eyewitnesses saying that they've seen him in South America. Um, people say they've met him, although obviously you can't always take that at face value. Documents proving... Mengele was there and he was a citizen of Argentina and the fact that thousands came over with him <laughs> and obviously the far right side in South America. So I think all these come together for quite a compelling theory. So I think I'm going to join Luke and go for a 7 out of 10 for believability on that. Yeah, I suppose that's just the beauty of conspiracy theories. You might think something sounds utterly ridiculous on face value but as you do some more digging actually realize it's a well-researched well put together theory it can get you thinking at the very least there is more to this theory than what it may seem it's just as you dig deeper and realize sometimes it's not always the case that the absolute truth is being pushed and it can you know just get really interesting when you start looking further and scratching below the surface and then even if they're not true, at least they make a bloody good podcast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose that concludes my theory, and I'll hand over to Luke for his. Okay, so on to my theory now, and what's becoming quite a recurring theme for me, I'm going to start my theory with a question to you. So if I was to mention a country famous for its neutrality in conflict, who would you assume I was referring to? Well, from my theory, I would say the US, but I know that's not before. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, the answer you're looking for is... Switzerland. Yeah, you're right, John. So obviously the US was famous for neutrality as well, especially prior to World War One, but throughout history it's always been Switzerland. So Switzerland is famed for being neutral, and this is despite Switzerland being neighbours and very culturally similar to Austria. The infamously evil Austria, starter of two world wars, is still far right today, and formerly ran an inbred led empire that oppressed minority Slavic groups, amongst other. Switzerland, on the other hand, likes to keep itself out of external affairs, be it through 76% of the country voting not to join the EU in a 2001 referendum, or being impartial to North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un and letting him study there. I might also add that we did uh, discuss Kim Jong-un a little bit more in his Swiss history in our episode 3 of the Focus Woods podcast. Yeah. should check that out. I mean, it's, it's very interesting that Kim Jong-un, who's kind of considered such a secluded leader and very set in his ways would study at a Swiss school, which we know Switzerland is famed for human rights and North Korea we know is famed for the complete opposite. So <laughs> it kind of blows your mind a bit. World War II was no different. Switzerland's policy of neutrality has helped the country greatly through history, enabling it to benefit in times of conflict whilst other nations tore each other to the ground. And this has enabled it to prosper into the highly developed nation it is today where McDonald's employees get paid over $15 an hour. And so for my theory, I will be entertaining the idea that Swiss neutrality is holding some darker secrets from both a World War II perspective and then looking at it a bit deeper into the future. On paper, it might seem logical that Switzerland would stay neutral in World War II. Callum, you mentioned your geography isn't the best, but do you know which uh, are the two main ethnic groups in Switzerland? So if I was to say like British people are ethnically Germanic and ethnically Celtic, what would you say for Switzerland? I imagine they're quite a bit Germanic as well. Is that? Yeah. They also Anglo as well, maybe. French, the French, French. There yeah. we go, yeah. There we go, they're in the end. Crikey. <laughs> so yeah, Switzerland is a majority ethnically Germanic country, but it also has a hef- heavily ethnic French population. So much like America in World War One, with its heavy Anglo and heavy German population, Switzerland would anger part of their population by picking sides in the war. If they were to side with the Allies, they would annoy their German population. But if they were to side with the Axis, obviously they would ignore their French population. 
So Swiss neutrality actually, however, has a lot deeper roots than this, and it actually originated in 1815 when the Swiss agreed with European countries at the Treaty of Paris it would be militarily neutral. Despite their neutrality, Switzerland, for such a small country, has still played a huge role in international conflict and politics, thanks to its role as an international bank and its role in the Geneva Convention, a ruling which changed international conflict and most would argue for the better. I think when you think about Switzerland and maybe their involvement in what well, definitely Geneva Convention is the first thing that springs yeah. to mind. And yeah, like you said, it's just basically given a sort of written set of rules that you can't really violate when declaring war on countries and also do like human rights and trying to ensure that wars are fought fairly, I guess. This theory will touch on it a bit later, but in some ways it seems like Switzerland is trying to kind of control international conflict and, you know, set the rules. The one that's pushing the pieces around was pretending to be neutral, this theory would suggest. They've got some ulterior motives. This is like world domination. So, as I said, Switzerland is neutral, but the first thing that really stands out about this is that despite this, they are renowned for having one of the world's most efficient and innovative militaries. I mean, everyone's heard of the Swiss Army Knife. Swiss military innovations are really incredible and high-tech. And Military service is still compulsory in Switzerland as well today and hence the majority of Swiss men are militarily able and trained. Interestingly as well, on this kind of line, one of the greatest athletes of all time, Roger Federer, because of his back problems, was deemed too unfit for Swiss military service. Despite having won countless grand slams. Yeah, I mean, this was actually when he was still a young player, so I think he'd only just played like one semi-major tournament when this happened. Obviously, his back wasn't too bad to go on and win 20 tennis grand slams, but... <laughs> It got him out of his military service. I, I'd assume he's a doctor, I think. Yeah, I'd assume that they do make some exceptions for huge stars. South Korea didn't with Hyun Min Son. Exactly. Yeah, so don't know how you guys feel about this, but it doesn't sit well with me that Switzerland maintains such a large military presence considering it's neutral. I suppose you could argue it's maybe trying to protect its national interest in the very unlikely event that someone does decide to invade. Yeah, the reasons that Switzerland actually give for maintaining the military service is defence and peacekeeping. So I guess that again goes down the human rights Geneva Convention line. Is that not why everybody has a military though? Defence. Well, yeah, exactly. That's a good point, to be fair. <laughs> I suppose it might seem, I mean, like I say, in today's climate, so when you think in modern times, there's less chance a country's going to invade, like they'd say in the medieval times when countries are gallivanting off across the seas with their armies trying to conquer whatever got in their way. I think as well for a country that is so pro-peace and obviously neutral, even despite this, was able to mobilise 850,000 readily trained troops in a short time frame in an act of defence. And this is actually only 200,000 fewer men than the British military was able to mobilise in the entirety of 1939 at the start of World War II. Uh, for a bit of perspective, Switzerland's population is one-eighth of the United Kingdom. So that really goes to show like they do have the military presence there and it's ready to go if ever needed. Did these uh, see any active duty or is it just case they were mobilised just in case? Uh, no, they didn't see any active duty. It was just mobilised in case. Yeah, it really begs the question why uh, Switzerland needs to have such an active military considering it never gets involved in conflict. It seems kind of crazy to have it just in the case of the fence. And this has obviously led many to believe that there are some darker secrets being hidden and guarded by the Swiss, and that's why they need to maintain such a heavy military presence. And people believe these secrets link back to World War II. As almost incredibly, despite being surrounded on all borders by Axis territory, literally a huge radius around Switzerland was all Nazi-occupied. 
yet Switzerland was never invaded. And I'd urge you to look at a map of um, Axis territory during World War Two because it's literally just all covered apart from like one small area, and that's Switzerland. Because I think maybe even if you declare neutrality, it's just in writing. There's nothing to stop, say, Germany from invading exactly. if it felt. Yeah, and I mean, there were many other countries that pled neutrality, including Denmark, for example, and also oh, Latvia. With your heart. Very close to my heart, indeed. And so as Callum mentioned, neutrality was just in writing, and it's quite surprising that it would be followed. Probably even more surprising when you kind of look at it in context. So I mentioned Swiss neutrality was agreed in 1815 by a number of European countries uh, during the Treaty of Paris. And in 1815, it was agreed by Prussia, which obviously includes modern day Germany. But Hitler was hardly a man of his word. And he broke many famous treaties, none more famous than the Treaty of Versailles. Adolf Hitler really going to uphold a 125 year old agreement made by a German state that no longer existed? Seems pretty unlikely to me. And we all know Hitler's idea of Lebensraum or living room in English, which revolved around expanding Germany and creating more space for the Germanic people. Switzerland borders Germany and is home to 65% Germanic people, so was undoubtedly part of Hitler's plan. However, he never invaded Switzerland. Now, could this be because the Swiss weren't so neutral and secretly had an agreement with Hitler? And were they doing everything in their power to help him and the Nazis win? Well, I suppose I think you're talking about the breaking the treaties. I think an act of war is essentially just going to break most treaties that have been established. So you're going to be committed to a war. You're not going to, yeah, as you said, you're not going to be particularly fussed about a treaty signed 100 years ago. Yeah, and I think as well, um, so the most famous part of the Geneva Convention was written in 1949, but... Um, I think the original Geneva Convention was in the 1800s. And I mean, this was massively broken in World War II. So I don't really doubt that Hitler would happily break a treaty from 1855 about Swiss neutrality to get what he wanted for the German people. And also, is there any evidence that the Swiss are feeding the Germans some of these 850,000 mobilized soldiers? So there is, there is evidence, which I'm going to touch on now, doesn't include any soldiers. And I think the main reason for this is Switzerland kind of wanted to do it under the scenes and sending its own troops would be too obvious. And I mean, they didn't really have the majority support of the Swiss people to help the Nazis. So everything kind of had to be done under radar. And yeah, people do believe that the Swiss were the technological innovators and for the Nazis during World War II. What would you say Switzerland is most famous for? Cheese. Cheese is definitely <laughs> one of them. Cowbells as well. Are you going to say the Swiss Army knife again? I mean, no. It's it's not Chocolate. really linked. To, it's not linked to the military. Backpacks. Come on, you, you guys are letting me down here. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. Jordan Shakiri. <laughs> right, I'm just going to have to give you the answer. I guess. We're going to kick ourselves, aren't we? So the Swiss banking system. Oh, for good. I didn't. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. I didn't really think of that. Too. I was thinking of like yeah. tangibles. Yeah, so like... is I. Yeah. No. That, that's that's fair enough. And I, I think for a, a bit of context, just to how big the Swiss banking system actually is, Swiss banks hold 6.5 trillion US dollars in assets. That's 25% of all global cross-border assets. That's a quarter of the money that is going across border in the world. This is ridiculous how how big it is. Swiss banks are so popular that they have negative interest rates. And that means that you, know, actually yeah. have, you actually have to pay to store your money in a Swiss account. Do you guys know why people would still do this while they'd still store, store their money in a Swiss account? It's a really high security. Exactly. Yeah, they offer secrecy and privacy and it's very, very secure. So it's quite untraceable. Um, so many shady dealings are stored in Swiss banks as it's legal to do so. And usually due to the secrecy policy uh, of the Swiss financial law, no questions are asked about kind of where the money came from. Oh, right. I see. So, you know, especially do you think how expensive funding a war is. 
Yeah, so just the same applied in World War Two, and the Nazi party had many financial dealings with Switzerland. Some believe that the seemingly endless pit of Nazi party money came through the shady dealings of many of the Swiss banks. And many also believe that the Nazi-leaning Swiss government agreed to help the Nazis financially and militarily, but through materials and not troops. So yeah, the, the Swiss government was actually quite uh, Nazi-leaning, but the population overwhelmingly wasn't. So it was never kind of out there in the open. It's all under wraps and... Any chance of these Argentines, John mentioned, of funding them? <laughs> so you joke about that, but I've actually got a point on the Argentines later that uh, links back to John's theory quite nicely. Ooh, yeah. So um, a book called Nazi Gold suggests that the Swiss took deposits of European Jews and fed them to the Nazi party. And thanks to the secrecy that the Swiss banks held, this was never found out and could never be found out later in history. The Swiss banks also held money the Nazi party stripped from Jewish businesses. And again, thanks to difficulty tracing Swiss deposits, were able to keep it totally under wrap. Uh, what, what's actually quite ironic is um, due to the privacy that Swiss banks uphold and due to the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe in the 1930s, many Jews actually stored money in Swiss banks so that it could stay private and it wasn't taken away from them. But little did they know, according to this theory, it would be the Swiss banks that actually took these deposits from the Jews and fed it to the Nazis so they could just have more and more money. Can't really complain if you have money about if your money is secretly stored away. You don't want people to find out about it. If you want to kick a big fuss, you're just giving away your secrets. Yeah, and, and, and I think this is the reason why um, Swiss banks have never really been properly looked into because, I mean, a lot of shady things go through them and a lot of powerful people probably don't really want Swiss banks being looked into. Might find more than you bargained for. Yeah. This links back to why potentially the Nazis never invaded Switzerland because they would be losing the engine of their war drive. I always find it odd that despite obviously Switzerland being famously neutral, the Nazis upheld that because, I mean, the Nazis didn't exactly have the most morals and Switzerland seems like a very logical target for the Nazis to go for. I said like the whole blitzkrieg and lightning war tactics they were doing, just raising through countries... Switzerland is basically on their war path. You think they almost like to go nice little loop around it on both sides and you just look at the map of the active territories. It does seem think, slightly odd, yeah. And I think what I also found interesting is despite Switzerland claiming to withhold a military for peacekeeping purposes and obviously being a world leader in human rights since the 1800s, Switzerland actually requested Germany put J's on the passports of Jewish people so that Switzerland could easily identify Jewish people. This resulted in Switzerland accepting 25,000 Jewish refugees in World War II, but they actually denied access to 30,000 Jewish refugees who inevitably got caught by the Germans and sent to the infamous concentration camps. Is What's the official explanation for that? There is no official explanation. Is it just they wanted to stay neutral because if they were taking Jews in, they would be seen as taking the side of the Allies? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you I mean, they just... took some in, though. So they took 25,000 in. That was under half of the amount. Yeah. Upholding off the humanitarian side, doesn't matter. I just sort of left, yeah. leave you at 30,000. We've done our, say, done our bit. So they've taken half, or roughly half, but they say if it's 55,000. So you could say that's a fairly neutral amount. I was going to say, it's yeah. perfectly neutral because <laughs> half of it's pleasing Germany because they're not taking half, and then half of it's pleasing everyone else because they are. Yeah, I, I mean, Genius. yeah, I guess you could guess that is pretty clever actually I'm not sure I, how that was stand up though like the humanitarian course of law <laughs> but i think they did that they probably run it so they could just like, pass it through yeah i think people do find it quite controversial as well that switzerland do seem to have a very disproportionate uh, a very disproportionate representation in like 
human rights field and also United Nations. There's obviously the United mm. Nations Centre in Geneva. And, you know, Switzerland refused to join the EU as well. Um, I believe they didn't join NATO. So it's very, it seems like a very secretive place, which is surprising because it's uh, not quite North Korea. So when you think of Switzerland, do you think quite civilised? It's got the whole the banking system. It's quite a nice chocolate. Yeah. Have you ever been there? I'm trying to, I don't think I have, no. Close to being to Austria. I, mean, I don't know why I brought that up. I've been, but it adds nothing to the <laughs> I didn't see any dodgy dealings going on. Didn't make any deposits in Swiss banks, no, any secret no. individuals. <laughs> I mean, I, I work for a Swiss banking company, so I better keep my mouth shut. Getting a P45 through the door when this guy's live. <laughs> I've seen some dodgy stuff, I tell you. Oof. <laughs> you won't press you on that. Uh, so as I mentioned, they did actually accept 25,000 Jewish refugees. And for a bit of context for you, in comparison, the UK took 70,000 Jewish refugees and a country with probably the most debatable human rights policies in the world, China, took 30,000 in Shanghai. Well, that is surprising, especially the Jewish people going as far as Shanghai. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, there's actually some very, very interesting stories about the Jews in Shanghai. Um, definitely worth a look if you get some time. Just seems like the last place you'd expect to see a load of Jewish refugees. Really. Did they stay there, or did they go back after the war? Um, a lot of them went back, but there is lasting quite a lasting legacy of them there. Yeah, okay. I mean, even you think if most of the Jews are on mainland Europe, you're trying to get to the UK in wartime. A bit of a perilous journey. I mean, yeah, you're not going through neutral territory like Switzerland to get to the no. UK. Are you? you're going through Axis territory? Really. <laughs> And plus you had um, U-boats patrolling the sea, trying to sink shipping transports and stuff like that. So, yeah. Or maybe they, um, the Swiss offered to take in some Jews so they could get access to their money and then funnel it through to the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, so for years after the World War, um, the Swiss maintained they were neutral throughout the war and they never accepted any responsibility. However, in 1995, President Kaspar Villiger declared that we bear a considerable burden of guilt for the treatment of Jews by our country. So this was the first official admission of any Swiss culpability. Do you think maybe that's a deflection strategy just to say, OK, look, but we hold our hands up for this one. Don't go investigating anything else. So that's actually exactly what people say it is. As a result of him saying this, many people demanded that he look into Swiss bank accounts and that they be externally audited and families of Holocaust survivors get their rightful money because a lot of Holocaust survivors essentially found that their money in Swiss bank accounts had just disappeared. The theory kind of says that the money from the European Jews just went straight to the Nazis. And I mean, it was untraceable. If, if that ever was proven to be officially true. The problem with them doing this and if they ever found out anything is that it ruins everything that makes Swiss accounts great, uh, which is their privacy. And it could also shed some potentially horrific dealings between supposedly neutral Switzerland and the Nazis. And on top of that, I'm sure the Swiss economy and Arguably, the world economy, given how much assets Switzerland holds, would probably crash. Yeah, so it's been just held together by a bit of secrecy at the moment. May as well do it now, then, because it's about crashing madly anyway. Yeah. Oh, Switzerland just announces all its dodgy dealings. <laughs> all the pe- powerful people that hold Swiss accounts and put their dodgy money there. You'll be in the headlines for one day, they will forget about it with the latest the coronavirus. Yeah, no. And yeah, an interesting line to this story is what I'm going to end on is that as it was becoming more and more inevitable that Germany were going to lose the war, supposedly Henrik Himmler sent hundreds of millions of dollars of goods to be stored in Swiss bank vaults. 
Now, rumours are that this would be to fund the Fourth Reich movement. So I want to ask you guys, is Switzerland today secretly building an army in its mountains to take over the world using this money? Or is it instead sent the money to Argentina for the Fourth Reich to start? <laughs> well, if they had, I think, if you played a long game, that's for sure. They haven't made any, anything official yet. You think they've had enough years to plan this so-called Fourth Reich, whether it had its roots in Argentina or in the Swiss Alps. Maybe someone going on their skiing holiday might uncover something. Yeah, imagine. You saw these skiing down a black route or something, take a wrong turning, because of a massive <laughs> military installation in one of the cave, cave like a big swastika flags hanging down. <laughs> I think it's definitely an interesting thought, just the fact that they claim to be neutral but maintain such a large military and the secrecy of Swiss banks themselves. Um, I'm surprised there's not really more conspiracies out there regarding the Swiss kind of banking sector. Yeah, how, how much they push banking and also their neutrality is part of the Swiss identity. And they also push human rights so much and actually have a, quite a disproportionate amount of power in the world considering their size. It's a country of 8 million. That's tiny. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, do you guys want to give me some ratings and how you feel about this theory? Yeah, sure. I think this is a really interesting one. I open my eyes a little bit again. I think I say, obviously, I thought, I thought Switzerland was holier than thou. They always like to remind you of their neutrality and their excellent banking system. I didn't had no inkling of like there'd be any dodgy dealings going on behind the scenes. So cherry on the top of the cake could be like the potentially funding a fourth Reich. But it's because <laughs> I thought the Nazis were supposed to be um, rather bankrupt towards the end of the war. So if they're now send, they're able to send millions of. Well, they were bankrupt because. Oh, to Switzerland yeah. before it got taken by the Soviet. Deutschmarks or whatever, send, sending those over to the Swiss banks to be stored for for a rainy day or something that is funneled over to Argentina or in the Swiss mountains. Then you do think I mean, how big and powerful their military is for the size of the country, like having mandatory military service. And also despite... such a peaceful country as well. Yeah, so I think if they've got such a puff, I mean, they might be plotting something if you really want to get your conspiracy hats on. You're moving the pieces very slowly and just letting other countries which fight things out and then they make their move for potential global well, domination. Who knows? Maybe they're waiting for something like coronavirus when the world's weakened. Maybe the Swiss are going to attack, start their attack any day now. <laughs> I'll be looking out for it. I'll see the, get my Swiss army knife at the ready. <laughs> fight fire with fire. But over, I say overall, I'm going to give this conspiracy thing 8.5 out of 10. I really enjoyed hearing about it. I suppose as believability as well, it's like you did raise quite a few compelling points when you consider the wider picture of what was going on at the time. I think perhaps one of the most telling ones is, yes, you've got your neutrality statement, which you maintained for hundreds of years by the time of World War II. But for the, the, the rate the Axis was taking over mainland Europe, their war path towards, I think, France and the so I think that would be a final destination before they tried to go over to Great Britain. And to see this nice little patch of land of being Switzerland, being completely ignored almost, they've just gone taken, just you think of the world, take the path of least resistance to try to make a beeline through. You have to go a little detour around Switzerland, despite being a small country, probably power of the German army could have taken them with, I'd say on relative ease, given they had quite yeah. a strong military presence, but that is quite telling. It must have, because I don't think Hitler was going to be respecting any treaties of neutrality, especially when you mentioned, say, Denmark and Latvia were taken over. Oh, definitely not. So unless, yeah, those make you think he had some arrangements going on. You mentioned there's a right-wing government at the time. Yeah, I, I guess it's whether it was some kind of arrangement or whether the Germans were just scared of the Swiss because, I don't know, maybe the secret moon army or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite inclined to believe this one. I'm going to go for a 6.5 
all in all. Because when you find point, it's the banking system as well and how secretive it is. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that, yeah. they, say, they treated the Jews poorly. With the, maybe didn't uh, actually directly say they flogged all their assets to the Germans, but might have been implied. I think when anything's secretive, there's always going to be some kind of doubt in your mind. And because the Swiss banking system is so secretive, I mean, it just makes you think there's got to be definitely some dodgy stuff happening. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for that, Gala. How are you feeling on it, John? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think one of the good things about theories like this is like it's not a very well-known one. So it's a bit a bit more out there. And I suppose it makes you think a little bit more because like, I'd never really come across this theory I I know, obviously, that Swiss banks are very famous for how desirable they are and how it's kind of a no-questions-asked policy, but I never, I suppose, thought any further than that of the implications of it. I like the idea of the Swiss kind of thinking, well, we won't get involved in the war in terms of our military, but we'll kind of secretly fund who we want to win, because that way it's it's a win-win. If Germany win, then we can come out and publicly support them. And then if they don't, we can just say, well, we were neutral the whole time. So, yeah, I, I think it's really compelling. For an overall conspiracy, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. And the believability, I think there were some really good points. I think it maybe comes down a notch when you start saying that they're funding a fourth right, especially in Argentina. But I think I think I'll go five and a half on believability overall. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, I did really enjoy researching this theory. There was a lot more on it than I ever believed I'd find. And I especially find it interesting that one of their presidents did actually come out and accept some culpability for the treatment during World War Two. So I'm going to give this a solid eight as a conspiracy. In terms of believability, it's a difficult one because you could even argue that them accepting German deposits during World War Two is a sign of neutrality. Um, they didn't discriminate mm. against them because they were Nazis. They just accepted anyone and everyone. I do definitely find it odd that Germany just never invaded Switzerland, um, but invaded everywhere else. Because aside from Austria, you'd probably argue that Switzerland was the next most desirable destination um, just because of its proximity to Germany and having so many ethnically German people already. One more thing I will say about this is that there is actually a group of people still fighting for money of the Holocaust survivors. And they're still kind of asking for anything to be done in terms of auditing the Swiss bank accounts and kind of having a look back to the 1940s when this was ongoing. So if anything like that was to ever get more sway, it would be interesting to see. There was actually a US senator in the 90s who tried to get more done on this, but nothing ever got done. So in terms of believability, I think I'm going to give it a five. It's not totally believable that the Swiss were totally driving the Nazis, but I do have some beliefs that they were playing some kind of part, whether it's uh, just, you know, holding money for them or what. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting one. And yeah, I enjoyed researching it. So back to you, John, I believe, for our game of conspiracy. Yeah, thank you very much. So... What we're going to do now to end the podcast is a game called Conspiracy. Every week, the host has to look up three conspiracy theories related to the topic chosen for the podcast for that week. So obviously this week is World War Two. What the other two co-hosts have to do is they have to guess which two conspiracies are ones I found online. So they're almost certainly not true, but they're at least were found online and somebody somewhere believes them. And then the third one I've just made up. And the other two hosts have to uh, work out which one I've made up. And there's been some mixed results. The the bar has gone up considerably, I think, in the last few weeks. It's been a lot more difficult for the other hosts to work out um, which is which. So hopefully that can continue this week, but we'll find out. Right, let's get straight into it. So theory number one, then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was murdered on Winston Churchill's orders in 1940. Number two. The Nazis had a military base on the moon 
and used it to control the Second World War. And number three, global Jewish community actually planned to go to war with Germany just before World War II started. Right, do you want to give us some more details? They're definitely all very interesting in, in some way, I guess. All very likely to be conspiracies out there. So you're going to say very likely to be true then? <laughs> <laughs> number two, well, definitely well, likely to be true. Well done. Num- <laughs> I thought number two was a fact, to be honest. So <laughs> That's what they found on the Apollo missions. That's why they never went back. <laughs> it wasn't just a moon base, it was a Nazi moon base. It was a robot Hitler. <laughs> That's where he went. Yeah, not Argentina. He went to them. <laughs> so I'll give you a little bit more. Neville Chamberlain, who was Prime Minister of the UK, was murdered on Churchill's orders in 1940. This is because Chamberlain refused to stand aside from his position and let Churchill lead. Although he agreed to join the war, he was reluctant to do anything that was necessary to win, unlike Churchill, who he was willing to like win whatever the costs. Churchill convinced the Queen and MPs to force Chamberlain aside, and he was assassinated. Next one, so the Nazis had a base on the moon and used it to control the war. It was installed in 1942 and it was mainly used to manipulate tides for Navy combat. There's also a picture of a swastika on the moon, which adds a bit of weight to this. And they also allegedly fired lasers down to target bases rather than bombs or missiles. Because I don't know if whether you know this, but the German missiles and bombs were in World War II were actually silent. Whereas the UK ones weren't. We didn't have that technology. So this theory says that was actually because they were lasers rather than normal bombs. And then the last one is the global Jewish community planned to go to war with Germany. Poland planned to attack Germany and had guarantees from the Illuminati and uh, the like Jewish community that allegedly run the world that the UK and France would defend Poland should they attack Germany. Hitler was actually trying to overthrow the Illuminati, but eventually was overpowered. That last one sounds brilliant. Sounds proper conspiracy <laughs> material. So he's actually a hero. Yeah. <laughs> Throw the Illuminati in there. You've instantly got people making all sorts of theories. So Hitler did also intercept some Jewish communications and realised, right, Christ, we need to amp up our second right, turn into the third right, and go on the offensive to stop the Jewish invasion. Yeah, pretty much. This theory just reckons he was trying to overthrow the Illuminati and for the good of Germany and the world. I think starting on the first one, personally, I do find it quite likely. Obviously, we all know Winston Churchill was a very aggressive man and very keen to use all the forces at Britain's disposal to stop Germany. And with Neville Chamberlain, the British response had been relatively weak, just a small British expeditionary force sent to France. And then obviously, Germany took France with such ease. And it was quite embarrassing. <laughs> France practically laid down I mean, in Paris. Yeah. I mean, they didn't want to fight. They didn't want to destroy their beautiful city. It angered a lot of people in Britain that Europe was just allowed to be taken so easily because I think many people in Britain thought that Britain was on a level with Germany and there's no reason that Britain shouldn't be able to take Germany on its own. So the fact that Neville Chamberlain wasn't using what was at his disposal angered a lot of people and I think a lot of people wanted him out and wanted Churchill in. And Churchill, what we know about him, he does seem like the kind of man who would do anything the UK and anything to stop the Nazis. So you wouldn't put it past him to murder Neville Chamberlain. It's just I'm, I'm wondering, John, did they get like a paid actor in to play Neville Chamberlain after, like Avril Lavigne? No, he died in 1940. Oh, did he actually? So, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. They reckon he was murdered so Churchill could 
So how long did he, he die? Prime the, Minister. Wait, I didn't realise he died in Churchill took over. I thought Churchill took over because he left. That is what I always thought, but then seem to remember. Well, yeah. Well, he died in 1940. Of I, I didn't know he died apparently. that early. That's, that's yeah, quite, quite yeah. damn. When I found that out, I kind of put two and two together that maybe that's why Churchill yeah. came in. But yeah, I did always think it was the other way around that he was voted out, kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, how would you fake a murder, a murder, and disguise it as bowel cancer? I don't know. Probably quite unknown at the time, to be honest. So you could just yeah. say what you wanted. Yeah. Was it like, 80 years ago, aren't we? Yeah. I'm not saying that Churchill himself carried out the murder. It was like arranged by Churchill. No, it was arranged. Oh, right. Okay. We have a British bulldog spirit and all that. I don't think he'd quite go to cold murder by, by his own hand. <laughs> I think the Nazi Moonbase one, it's it's a bit bait because of what the topic was last week. But it is certainly interesting. And, y- you know, people believe kind of anything, any conspiracy about the Nazis. So you wouldn't put it past someone to make this. It's just one of those ones that's always like too ludicrous not to be made of, yeah. like a big red herring type thing. But it's something <laughs> I really want to believe because I would love to find out that was the case. I, I do remember <laughs> reading something when I was researching moon theories last week about Nazis on the moon. But I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it's quite as deep as them controlling the tides using the moon. <laughs> don't know the technology behind yeah. it. So this basically I, renders the whole space race moot, though, because Germany had already won 20 yeah. years before. Comfortably as well. Germany won 20 years before. They were supposedly lassoing the moon around the Earth so they could sort out the tide. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Germany had some top scientists and a lot of money thanks to the Swiss. Who knows what they're capable of? Yeah, there you go. They were quite pioneering in their rocket programs as well. The V1, the V2 rocket missiles were supposedly ahead of their time. Yeah. They got the jet engine first as well, I seem to recall. Yeah, I think so. They could hit London from Berlin, whereas we were nowhere near being able to do that. Crazy to think. Swiss money. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Swiss money. And then America recruited all the Nazi scientists afterwards. They clearly knew something. Yeah. I'm believing, I say believing this one, I believe this is a theory more and more now. Yeah, actually. I, I, <laughs> do you want to touch on the third one a bit more, Callum? Third one, which was... The Illuminati, well, the Illuminati slash hit. Jewish community Blue. one. <laughs> <laughs> because Jewish conspiracies seem to be quite, well... Like, I mean, they're massive, aren't they? They are, especially when you throw the Illuminati in there as well. There's lots of theories that think that there's a Jewish conspiracy, the whole Zionist elements, they are out for world domination, perhaps through the Illuminati... I think I'm making thing made up my mind. I'm not sure how well this is going to go, but I'm willing to take a stab. Go on then. I'm going to say that the first one is the conspiracy. That's one that you've made up because the first, say the second one is just so ridiculous. It's got to be a bait one. It's the second, third one, arguably as well. But plus the whole, um, the throwing the Illuminati in there, throwing a Jewish conspiracy as well. Someone, some out there, out there, believe it. I think. Yeah, you'll find out shortly, Luke. What are you going for? Do you agree or do you not? Yeah, I'm actually agreeing with Callum um, that the first one's the conspiracy. I'm thinking about playing it tactically and choosing another one to give us a better chance of one of us winning. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna go in my heart and say uh, Neville Chamberlain being murdered by Churchill is the conspiracy. Yeah, I think he's under a lot of bad press recently. Churchill, I don't want to do him any dirty. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can confirm that. You were both correct. Oh, yeah. thank you. I did <laughs> make that one up, yeah. i tell you what, though, you've maintained the standard, though. That was a very good game as well. <laughs> oh, uh, when you started talking about that one, I was like, oh, they seem to have fallen for this. And then, like, no, it's no, at least it's... ludicrous, but sometimes that doesn't go in its favour. <laughs> well, it's a fine balance between being so ludicrous, you think, oh, yeah, we're bait- you're getting baited. We start mentioning the moon lasers and stuff. Plus, we had the uh, moon podcast last week. Might be fresh in your mind. 
Yeah, I might have to look these two up, especially the Nazis on the moon. That's saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was very much on it. I found all of a couple of paragraphs, but yeah, feel free to give it a read. It's reasonably interesting. It's, it's enough for a conspiracy, that's for sure. Yeah, they had the date that, they, that it was up there in 1942, and it was a nice picture of a swastika rock on the moon. <laughs> so go and have a look at those if you're interested, everyone. <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll round up this week's episode here. Again, just want to say, Thanks to everyone who's listened this far and uh, a huge thank you for 50 subscribers. Hopefully we can, you know, carry on growing, but we are happy. We've kind of blown our minds out well we've done already and we didn't expect even to have 50 at this point. So huge thank you for that. And yeah, see you later. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, keep thank- challenging the status. <laughs>